Well, all right. Welcome back to I Eat Movies. We are well into our season three. Good evening, Mike. What's going on? Not much, man. We are back again after uh, gorging ourselves on uh, two um, Hitchcockian throwbacks. want to thank everybody for tuning in to I Eat Movies number 23. And we are back yet again with I Eat Movies number 24. Always good to be back uh, chatting movies with you, my man. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm not enjoying the heat, but that's what happens every summer, I suppose. And uh, <laughs> I feel like we're always complaining about the heat when we get on these episodes. It, you know, it's it's like people might imagine that 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 <laughs> that people from our part of the country like to complain a lot or something. <laughs> Weird. Weird. So yes, tonight we're doing a uh, we're doing a, a single movie show tonight. We are uh, adjusting for the weather uh, and our our relative level of complainingness. Uh, <laughs> we are doing our one of our first time series, and tonight let's get right to it. Uh, I suppose we are going for Mike's first time on the 1972 film Trick Baby. <laughs> Trick Baby, the best-selling novel by Iceberg Slim, hottest black writer in the world today. The real gut story of the ghetto, its bras, its dudes, and high rollers like Blue Howard, the slickest con man of them all. Tonight, I'm drinking to the suckers, God bless their greedy little hearts. Because without them, where would us hustlers be? This is my first time uh, with Trick Baby. Uh, this was a film that Dino and I, I believe, discussed uh, many, many times. I think dating back to even season one in many of our prep meetings. Uh, we were trying to find the right combination of things to 
potentially uh, pair this film with. Um, and it was always being discussed about, and then um, we still hadn't gotten to it, so it seemed like the right fit to make this um, a first-time episode for me. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this is one that Dino's talked about again and again. I've had this in my collection for quite some time. Uh, this is still readily available on Blu-ray from Scorpion releasing, uh, just to throw that out there right at the get-go so that people know where and how they can obtain this. Um, so I watched the Scorpion releasing Blu-ray, and uh, this is one that, you know, uh, like many things, uh, Dino's been uh, banging the drum to me about for uh, quite some time. Uh, and yeah, the short and sweet of this is that I really, really took to this film, but I'm going to let Dino, I think, kind of properly lay the groundwork uh, for Trick Baby. Right back well, it's, it, it's nice. Thank you. It's nice to know that I uh, that, that that I that I did something right. Uh, you know, the, <laughs> sometimes, the, sometimes this week, this week, and I'll fuck it up soon. Uh, <laughs> nevertheless, all right. So, 1972 film Trick Baby is one of the um, black action, black cinema uh, films of the 70s that I highly revere. It's not like pretty much any of the other ones, but when we talked about Hitman, uh, I brought up movies like Truck Turner. Um, we've mentioned a few times, I think, on different episodes, movies like Trouble Man. Um, really important set. It was a really important period of me getting into movies, focusing on black cinema of the 70s. Uh, but I think it's notable that there's all these heavily black cast or black uh, culturally themed movies that don't represent what people tend to think of as black exploitation, which is much more silly and gaudy and and uh like for me it was really significant to learn that that jack hill was pissed off that he that that after he made coffee and coffee is very in a very similar vein to trick baby i think sure. uh coffee is a really hard like dark and noirish character study that because the studio and the studio decided sequels aren't doing well um they wouldn't make it. Let him make a, a sequel to Coffee. So he made Foxy Brown as a kind of fuck you, and that's why Foxy Brown is so over the top and cartoonish and so forth. And and actually, and 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 Truck Turner is deliberately uh, loaded with a certain level of parody as well. So all right, on to on to the uh, the title at hand. All right. Um, Forgive me for being somewhat more concise. I promise I'll get. <laughs> yeah, forgive Dino for being extra prepared this year. He he My, had, uh... he, had, he has jotted down um, a a well uh, a well detailed synopsis from what I'm hearing. Well, you you haven't you haven't heard it yet. It might be terrible. <laughs> oh, anyway, you're right, you're all right. right. I'm sorry. So okay. Blue Howard and white folks are a team of Philly con men, both black, but folks is a quote trick baby, possessing no black features, passing as white. Together, they arrange a con to swindle $10,000 for bogus jewelry from an old man. After the mark realizes he's been taken, he has a heart attack and crashes his car. We find out that, his old, that this old man was the uncle of a local mafia boss, which folks in blue did not know. The pair, seemingly bonded since folks' childhood, now have to manage a vicious policeman looking to profit on their bad fortune, mafia hitmen looking for them, and their own eagerness to keep running con games despite imminent danger closing, around, closing on, in on them. So well, that. <laughs> yeah, well no. done, sir. Well done. Perhaps, perhaps I, I, I didn't, I didn't pause or say um enough, and I'll make up for it right now. You sure uh, will. <laughs> so, so this, uh, interestingly enough, uh, Trick Baby did not come out, uh, as far as I can tell, on U.S. home video until um, 
until uh, a kind of cheesy uh, imprint label of Universal put it out on DVD. I think it was the mid-2000s. Uh, I, I, I don't have it in front of me. Uh, all that prep, you know, I, the, the, the synopsis took a lot out of me. Uh, but <laughs> Our listeners are so I've, disappointed. In I've you. talked before about how... Um, about how in the late 90s, uh, mid-late 90s, I was buying all these black action movies, usually on videotape. And I was buying the MGM line of Soul Cinema. Mm-hmm. It's pretty Terrific. broad. Pretty broad. Uh, the MGM did a lot of great movies and held on to them. It did a nice job packaging them on videotape and then, and then DVD under the Soul Cinema banner. Mm-hmm. Um, Universal... <laughs> who is responsible for Trick Baby, even though it was completely independent production that uh, they picked up or was sold to them. They came up with Soul Showcase. And the thing about Soul Showcase, whereas there's like, maybe there was 10, maybe even 12 in the Soul Cinema MGM line of movies, mm-hmm. uh, including a few that were VHS only. Uh, I think um, I think the main one that was VHS only was Norman Is That You?, Never saw a DVD. The Soul Showcase series on Universal was only That Man Bolt, Willie Dynamite, Trick Baby, and I think Bustin' Loose as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I th- it was only about maybe those those four, and you could still find a DVD set where they combined, uh, I think, Trick Baby, That Man Bolt, and Willie Dynamite all together. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's pretty much like what all the Universal did with their soul shows, their quote soul showcase, totally in the shadow of this. That's where I first saw it, but um, I th- I'm not sure where I read about it initially. So uh, so 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 um, well, let me know. Let me know. Let me know uh, how you found this movie, even from the beginning, from 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 the introduction and and diving right into this movie. Well, yeah, uh, sure. I mean, really, I came across this because I uh, I tend to pick up almost everything from Scorpion releasing. They're, they are, of course, one of the many independent boutique labels that are on the circuit. So for anybody who's like a physical media, you know, lover, uh, you know, a uh, supporter of um, independent labels such as Scorpion or Fun City Editions, Vinegar Syndrome, etc., um, I tend to pick up almost everything from them. And especially uh, something like Trick Baby comes right upon my radar because as we've discussed, you know, uh, on air and off air, me and you both have a, a very deep reverence for black cinema. We've obviously yes. talked about our love for gay cinema as well. Um, but black cinema in particular is, um, is one that's really close to me. And, and I, and I, I don't know if people find that um, surprising, um, especially when you're not African-American perhaps, but hmm. you know, I, I, what I love so much about this cinema in general is I think precisely what attracted African, African-American audiences to it at the height of it. It was the first time that those audiences were seeing really empowering characters brought to life on the big mm-hmm. screen and the color at least to me doesn't matter you know it, it, it's it's empowering um to me just to see strong characters represented it and matters I, it matters in the context of in the cultural context yes the cultural context for sure but for me it's i i just love seeing strong characters represented especially in very um very intimate and um uh I, I guess uh, the word is very um, notable um, environments, uh, Trick Baby being one of them, being said, uh, of course, in the city of brotherly love. So I love seeing characters represented like that. And I, I've just always taken such a deep, um, you know, liking to 
all black cinema ever since I was introduced to it as a teenager, similar to you as well. I just can't get, uh, you know, I just can't get enough of this stuff and the actors and the filmmakers that brought it to life in this very short window where, you know, audiences were selling out Times Square theaters, grindhouses and what have you. Um, so I love that, and I love that these films are still kind of getting resurrected in this day and age. Trick Baby is one um, very special, I think, because, uh, you know, in, in contrast to things that are a little bit more well-known to audiences like Coffee or Foxy Brown or even a Truck Turner, Trick Baby definitely falls a little bit, you know, um, lower on the totem pole because, uh, as we mentioned, it was independently produced um, for about $600,000, and then it was picked yep. up by Universal for a million. Went on to uh, really great success. I think it made about an estimated $11 million back in mm -hmm. 1972, which is really impressive uh, knowing at the time that the actors um, – that were in this were relatively unknown people. Uh, really, I think that the big thing, and of course we're going to go into this, uh, is this, um, the film, the source material that this film is based on is, of course, by um, a very renowned novel uh, by Iceberg Slim. Um, I have not read this book. Uh, I mentioned off air that I did want to read this book before uh, we got to this episode, but of course uh, I did not get a chance to. But um, it can't be understated just how influential Iceberg Slim's writing has been, mm -hmm. um, the impact it's had on um, you know African American culture, and particularly I think hip hop culture. I, I think that's safe. It's to where Ice T sure. got Ice T got his name from reading reading the Iceberg Slim books right. and 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 reciting reciting some of the uh, some of the you know rougher street terminology to people. People would always say you know yo ice you know. Re repeat some of the Iceberg Slim, you know, stuff to him. Uh, so re repeat some of the lines, you know. Yeah. And, and that that was, you know, Ice T back yeah. in back when he was still like, you know, a kid or a, a criminal, and then you know, a rapper later on. Iceberg right. Slim is one of like three of the big uh, black writers of that time that were mostly pulp writers, or you know, not necessarily what they were used to call culture with a big C. Mm -hmm. uh, um, writers who, uh, who were black Americans. Uh, the other two, of course, are Donald Goins, more in the line of Iceberg, uh, of Iceberg Slim, uh, criminal, you know, pulpier stuff. And the slightly, I would say slightly more highbrow, but still pulpy would be um, uh, Chester Himes. And mm -hmm. and some of these books are, uh, I mean, I, I've read, I, I've read a, I, I've read Pimp uh, by uh, by Iceberg Slim. I've read a few Chester Himes. The Chester Himes books have been adapted. One of the one of the adaptations will come up today because uh, there's a crossover between an actor in Truck uh, in Truck in uh, Trick Baby and uh, and and uh, I think the last of the Chester Himes adaptations, A Rage in Harlem, mm -hmm. um, and 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 they tend to be very dark and noirish, and that's not like a silly pun on words, play on words. Like the Chester Himes ones are really interesting because one of the assessments I read way back when I was really, you know, invested in this stuff, really focused on Chester Himes, uh, who wrote the, the cotton, the, the, the gravedigger ed, uh, the, the, was it cotton? Uh, I'm going to forget their names. The characters from cotton comes to Harlem and come back Charleston mm -hmm. blue uh, coffin Ed and the gravedigger. Um, basically these two cops in Harlem who 
they don't get as much done as you think they might, but it's not comic as much as somewhat tragic. And one of the best assessments I, I heard of, of a recurrent trope in the Chester Himes novels. And again, these are these are street level books, but they all three of these uh, of these writers, uh, Slim Goins and Himes, they all had this interesting, like surprisingly calculating intellect behind what they wrote that Himes's books kind of focused on absurdism, the -hmm. absurdism of like urban life, the absurdism of trying to figure out crime and trying to solve crime in a logical linear manner when, when, when so much of criminality and and humanity doesn't follow logic. Um, Very interesting uh, behind some of this and the, and the iceberg slim books, you know, they do normally focus or often focus on uh, on, on um, pimping. That's that's a, that's the big thing because he had been a pimp in his life, yeah, uh, and, and was writing from that place, yeah. And that's what I take so much um, from this um, from this film. This was, of course, the first film adaptation of any of um, Iceberg Slim's um, novels. Pimp it's the only a, one. It's the, the only, only one. one. There's right. been oh. attempts, and there's stuff that's like. There's been attempts, and some. I think there's something that was listed as in production of 2017. Yeah, I don't think um, anyone else has done it. Yeah, Pimp has been on and off uh, in various forms of development since I think the early 90s. Um, another one of his novels, Mama Black Widow, has been in development um, with a screenplay that's um, reportedly being adapted and directed by Marshall Tyler. Um, I guess that's uh, to be determined. Um, but this was the first and only feature film adaptation of Slim's work um, at the time of this recording. But I, I think what I gravitate to so much in this particular film is um, – that lived in experience that iceberg slim is is bringing to it you can tell that this is coming from a place of reality of of a of a true um lived in uh firsthand experience um the director uh larry used who um i think in later years kind of went on to uh, a career in photography um he doesn't have too many films under his belt the he only has other one two Two. He has two. Two to be exact. He, he, disowned, he disowned one. Right. <laughs> the, 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 these two movies are, well, I think, consecutive years for mm-hmm. the same producer for, you know, for Marshall Backler. Uh, and, and, and I think he made something in the 80s that he disowned. Yeah. But he has two feature films. But his background and actually him working with the same DP, Isidore Mankowski, Mm-hmm. Um, his background is working uh, in shorts and educational films for Encyclopedia Britannica because his father was one of the editors of Encyclopedia Britannica and he he worked with them making actually some some very highly acclaimed educational films wow. uh, and adaptations of stories um, for uh, you know for Encyclopedia Britannica backed uh, productions. Wow. Sorry you're saying yeah. Um, no, I mean, he he's an interesting character. And if you do get this um, really terrific Scorpion Blu-ray, there is a, a 27 minute interview with Larry on the disc where he talks about, um, you know, the whole sort of evolution of this project. Uh, the script was brought to him um, as a job uh, for hire. And upon reading the script, he found it to be completely unfilmable, didn't think that um, – it was a good script. He brought it back to the producer, to which the producer agreed with him. And then uh, it wasn't until at this juncture that Larry um, had found out that this was actually based on a source material. So he went back to the source and yeah. thought it was critical. 
essential to put the voice of Slim back into this. So he was allowed to go back and rewrite the script and put more of, you know, that flavor and that lived in experience that we're talking about into the script. Um, an interesting note, uh, when you're watching the film in the opening credits, um, yeah. it does indicate uh, that the screenplay is um, provided by an A. Newberg, I T. Rawwin and Larry used. And at the preview screening, um, Larry, upon seeing the film with uh, a nearly sold out crowd following the film's completion, went up to the producer and asked him, who are these two other people that are listed as uh, providing the screenplay? Like, I was the only person to which he kind of was brushed off and still to this day has never gotten an answer. So if anybody's wondering, you know, kind of surfing on IMDb, why these two other screenwriters only have one credit uh, on trick baby and never did anything again, it's because they don't exist for reasons that I suppose we will never find out. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, but did did you, by the way, did you, did you, uh, find the Nick Pigerton interview with him? Uh, no, I think I think um, I don't know if the whole thing's in shock cinema, but um, so some of the educational movies because uh, because Eust really loved the book, loved. Mm. The yeah. Book. Oh, he goes on and, and on about it. Yeah. yeah. In the interview. And, and, and he makes and unfortunately, he never even met Iceberg Slim. Right. Uh, but uh, but, you know, he was doing like classic adaptations for the Encyclopedia Britannica. So Pinkerton asked him, how did adapting Joseph Conrad and Shirley Jackson prepare you to adapt Iceberg Slim? And his response was, well, his writing was just as good as theirs was. I had to do a hell of a lot more work with Hemingway. I had to write pretty much – I had to pretty much write his dialogue. He didn't have enough. Of course, he was easy to imitate and so forth. Uh, the Iceberg Slim, I've never had anything since that was so easy to adapt. He said it took him less than a, maybe about a week to adapt the book uh, into, the, uh, into the screenplay using almost entirely – he said 99% of it was the dialogue from the book. Yeah, I totally believe it, because what we get in the film, to which I can only surmise you can find in the source material, it's so rich and real and raw. And I think that that's really the beauty um, and lasting impact of this film. Uh, You know, the film itself, um, it really kind of deconstructs, um, you know, the, the traditional black exploitation um, formula. This is a very different film where it's setting up two individuals uh an elderly black man on one end uh, an event a professional man his entire life matched with um for all intents and purposes a white man who is in fact actually biracial uh better known as of course you know as the title of the film indicates a trick baby uh being that his you mother know, is you know what that means right the the the, the term yeah. trick baby because there, there's also yes. isn't there a a sequel to one of the movies named Freeway that's like confessions of a subtitled confessions of a trick baby. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 So that's, oh, go ahead. Yeah, that's go ahead. the, that's the sequel to the Reese Witherspoon uh, film. Yeah. Um, so, but, but, but yes. the idea of a trick baby being that uh, his, what his mother was, his mother was a black prostitute. Yeah. And, and, and had and, a baby with a white John with a white. Yeah. Yeah. With yeah. a white trick. Therefore he's the result. And, uh, the insinuation is that that's a baby, especially at that period of time. Uh, it's that that's a baby nobody wants. So it's right. inherent. It's inherently a negative term. But go on. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So when you're dealing with these two people, um, 
that seem to be so universally different. And I think from the get-go, what this film does so well um, is that it's it's really playing a con on the audience, right in the right and uh, in, in the opening where you see um, the one of the main characters, uh, Johnny. O'Brien, who is better known in the film as White Folks, who's played by uh, the late Kale Martin. Um, and he brings uh, the elderly man that you mentioned uh, in your synopsis to a rickety sort of rundown um, apartment to where uh, the elderly black man, who is, of course, Blue Howard, played by the fantastic Mel Stewart in this mm. film. Um, they're trying to establish a deal where um He's the uh, the Mel, the Blue Howard character is harboring um, a stash of diamonds, and uh, the elderly man that uh, O'Brien has brought to that has brought. They want to make a deal for it, and a transaction takes place. So you think that the O'Brien character is this, you know, this white, this white, uh, powerful man who's talking down to this to this poverty-stricken black man. Uh, trying to make this deal uh, that clearly isn't advantageous to um, the Blue Howard character, making uh, you know this elderly man think that they you know got off uh, with a great deal. They basically just robbed this black man, and all unbeknownst to the audience, we don't know until these characters go their separate ways that the con is not only on this elderly man, but it's really on the audience. Right. And we see these two characters come together. Finally, when these two elevator doors open and, of course, the O'Brien character is out of his ripped up pajamas. He's looking good now in a suit. He just drove away in a really high end car and they come together demonstrating or showcasing to the audience that they actually are the ones conning this elderly man. I thought that that was such a brilliant opening and I knew that I was in good hands, that I was just in for a ride. I just loved what they did because I didn't expect that. I did not expect that I was kind of taking what taking what I was seeing at face value. So I knew, wow, this this is going to be quite a ride. And uh, the the rest of the film certainly keeps that memento up. I'll tell you that much. Well, yeah, I I completely agree. And I think it's a blast to to look at it from the beginning because you see uh, Blue played by, you know, Mel, uh, you know, Mel Stewart. Uh, you see Blue dressing the room. He's prepping the room. He's putting. He's carefully loading the ashtray for. You know, he's trying to look as shabby and feeble as possible. And then he quickly starts cleaning himself up and shaving and so forth. Um, the levels of con and deception are constantly at work in this movie. Not mm-hmm. just against the audience, but like who is fooling who? Who is in turn fooling themselves? That's like a major trope in this whole thing. I. 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 I, I Kind of can't believe I'm going to reference this fucking movie, but oh, please. it made me think it made me think of Martin Sheen's line in uh, The Departed mm-hmm. where he says we work in deception and we do not work in self-deception in mm-hmm. terms of like talking about the, the state police yeah. uh, in, in, in that movie. Um, but the idea that these are con men who are so embedded into the con and that the idea that there's and, and and this is very like this is what the books are like um, talking about like either the, the art of the con or the on of the art of pimping. It's so like there's so much like theory expounded on you have to do this. You, you know, the, 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 that that it makes it, it makes sense that 
the characters in it who are like career con men who are bragging about their conning abilities, who are looking forward and dreaming of the next chance they could do it, that they're not necessarily always in so in touch with reality, but they're willing to, to, to run the next con, whether it's on someone else or maybe even on themselves. That's definitely something very subtly at play in this movie because from that opening, you definitely get the idea that this is this is very rough hewn. This is this is not a big budget movie, or at least it looks very natural. Uh, yeah, like you said, six hundred thousand dollars at the time is not nothing, but it it it's so embedded in really. I think it was filmed mostly in North Philly, in really like one hundred percent location shooting, no inserts, nothing, but in really like kind of rough like urban locales. Um, yeah. And that's just production design that you can't yeah. even afford nowadays. Yeah. You know, it's just it, it was the time it was the place and being there to capture what it was. Again, going back to Slim's source material and what's played out in the film, just being in those real natural environments. It, it's just it just all adds to the experience. But what's interesting about that opening scene is that we see we realize that there's these two characters uh, who are. um you know, a white actor and a black actor. Uh, we we see them initially after the con as what would have been called at this point in time, and I still know people use this terminology, especially in the context of crime and whatnot. Uh, a salt and pepper team. Mm-hmm. The idea, uh, the idea in basic, like you know, even in like shoplifting or what have you, is that if you go into a place with one with one black. Uh, with one black person and one white person is that the black person is going to draw the, all the, all the attention while the white person gets away with the crime. Yeah. But we quickly go back, as you said, they go back to this nice apartment that they have where Cleo played by uh, the very prolific Bernie Watson. We'll get to her in a second unveils the fact and, and, and blue gets very angry very quickly about this unveils the fact that Keel Martin is playing um, a biracial character. We don't mm-hmm. know that at the beginning. At the beginning, it's just a white guy working with a black guy right. uh, into this con. But it, it takes on a different character. And again, you know, like, is... We don't ever really know the background exactly. It's it, it, it's We get the idea that there's a chance that Blue has actually raised folks has actually raised him since he was a kid. But yeah. he says, I knew his mother. His mother was as black as you. And, and Cleo's not having it. She has this great line where she goes, I never seen a white trick baby so square he'd he'd pass for black. So right. to say, if you could pass for white, which is, a, you know, there's enormous amounts of work, yeah. uh, academic and otherwise, uh, talking about passing. Uh, it, it is Gay History Month. We don't want to forget that, though we're not mm-hmm. necessarily focusing on that. Uh, but, um, the idea of passing for straight is one thing. The idea of passing for white, you know, is, uh, is, is significant. Um, but she's basically saying, why, what's wrong with this guy? I don't truly believe that he's black. Blue gets very mad. I'm telling you, he is black. He's one of us. Um, and, and, and then she says, well, I, you know, something's gotta be wrong with if he doesn't want to pass for white is basically her, right. Her, her, you know, what Cleo's trying to argue. And I and you know, you make a strong point about that because it, you're right. It's not um, it's not laid out uh, in this opening scene anywhere that the Kale um, 
character is meant to be biracial. We only view him as a white man. So I think it's really important that they do this and play this really clever con again on the elderly man, but also on the audience to just prove just how clever and smart this film is and kind of allows you to immediately get, uh, you know, get on board with this concept and who these characters are. So then when this is revealed or to not get on board for what it's worth, because again, that's a, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no. Yeah. I, I'm just saying, like, I think that it's interesting to play to to examine that a scene after where um, the Cleo character is, uh, you know, bringing all of this up because because it, it establishes different things in this moment. You're, you're seeing the Kale character um, exposed for what he really is, which is a biracial man, unbeknownst to us. You see, um, you know, how far the relationship between O'Brien and Blue goes back. Blue is very protective over him, and it seems to be like there's a, a um, you know, like a there's like a paternal, like fatherly son right. sort of dynamic between the two. If he didn't then, raise him, he trained him. He yeah. trained him, exactly, and they're very skilled in the art of the con. Lying is like second nature to them, or really, you know, it, it might be their their first and only spoken language. But another interesting dimension to this is that not only in the, in this in this moment of um, you know contention that Cleo is kind of spewing um, towards O'Brien, uh, we're also seeing um, an interesting form of almost um, unacceptance from Cleo, um, almost like a. a a racist slant towards um, the Kale character, which is interesting being that he's a biracial character and the fact that she doesn't accept him right. as such, only sees him as a white man. So it's it's very interesting to see, oh, well, not only did this guy grow up, um, you know, a hard lifestyle young, but this is the kind of stuff that he's experiencing on, you know, a, a side of culture that should be accepting of him, but he's always, it's, he's always probably faced these sorts of things. So I thought it was very interesting. There's a lot of different things going on in this sequence uh, on top of just, you know, demonstrating just how close and far back the relationship between Blue and O'Brien dates back. Right. I'm not sure if I think should be. I mean, it's very, it's very easy to idealize, uh, to idealize that, the, that idea. I mean, he's a, the, the fact that he is the trick baby, the fact that he is that already puts him at a um, a disadvantage because the, the idea sure. is that he's he's a liminal character. You know, mm-hmm. he doesn't fit in either side. He's somewhere in between, which yeah. might which might explain some of the affection that Blue has for him because it's maybe he's the only family, quote unquote, family that he has. But he's also he's he accepts him. And mm-hmm. and the fact that he's half white kind of knocks him down in what we see is constructed in the film in a primarily black world later in the movie blue actually says you should get into a white near area you should go to a white area and do the cons there and work with what work to the big time you know but we get the impression we, we get the idea pretty quickly that this is where keel thinks he should be whether or not the environment is welcoming of him so yeah. so the idea of being you know of being half white is actually a detriment to him yeah, for sure, for sure. His character. Yeah. And um, so we see that these guys are, you know, these are professionals at what they do. And of course, I guess with any professional in the conning game, it seems to be that, you know, what's the next con? What's the next great big con? Uh, and of course... And, 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 they, and they have to brag to each other. 
Like, like, yeah. Like they, they get back to the place, and he's like, "You got something mean with you, you know, mean in you." You know, uh, Blue says, uh, in terms of what he said, like, you know, if you touch those rocks, you're dead. And yeah. and then and then it's a beautiful. I, I I'm a big fan of Mel Stewart, but mm-hmm. beautiful piece of acting when what when folks is like, "You cried real tears," and Blue stops and goes, "Yes, I did." You know, <laughs> like in the middle of a con, yeah. he actually shed real tears. Yeah, and. And I don't want to I don't want to brush uh, um, past this too much, but, you know, with everything that we're talking about. One thing to really take away from this uh, film is that not only is it uh, incredibly fast paced and gritty, but I don't want to overlook the fact that how often funny this film is like this film is incredibly funny with um the relationship and the camaraderie that these two characters have and uh you know just their places in society so there's a lot of humor the two of them have really profound um chemistry in this film that i thought was incredibly absorbing um so again uh after they pull this con um on this elderly man um we of course learn that this elderly old man um isn't just anybody he is actually the uncle of a pretty prominent um local mobster once this man realizes that he's been taken for uh 10 grand a substantial sum um he has some sort of a heart attack while he's driving his car and gets into an accident Mm -hmm. to uh you know finally we uh fast forward to the hospital where he's uh not doing very well and of course um his uh mobster nephew is is looking over him and nino brelli the yeah. <laughs> Pirelli is a great name too. Played by Tony Mazadra, who is in this movie alone. Yes, go on. Yeah, and then at this point, uh, we are introduced to um, an African American uh, police officer um, who is played by. Please remind me of the actor. Dallas Dallas Edward Hayes. Dallas Edward Hayes. Yeah, who is who's in more than one movie, but. I think four appearances, right? Like that, that is that's a travesty because he is so great in this film. Yes. He's he's really incredible in this one. So he is, of course, at the hospital um, kind of uh, updating um, this mobster on what he knows at this point in time. And he informs him that he believes his uncle was taken um, advantage of by uh, two con men. But rests ass- uh, he rests assured that he is going to get to the bottom of it and bring uh these two individuals um to this mobster (laughs) and he makes the point this is a black uh this is a black uh police officer black detective Mm -hmm. he's kissing up to the nino pirelli character but the first thing he says is i think these two con men were colored yeah yeah which is which is it 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 comes up more than once but go on yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so that's uh so this now kind of sets the stage where um the two uh you know, con men with, uh, you know, bigger ambitions might have just, uh, you know, bit off more than they can chew here now that they're getting into the crosshairs of a local mobster. But now they're also getting into the crosshairs of um, seemingly a corrupt police officer. And then it really sets um, them on a different course. All the while, uh, O'Brien and Blue are now scheming for their next great big con, which involves... Um, uh, a phony um, real estate deal, uh, which th- this whole sequence, um, again, the O'Brien character operating as, you know, a white man in now uh, high society, mm-hmm. uh, he befriends this woman. Um, he basically picks up a woman who has has ended up in, in, the, in this black neighborhood 
almost mm-hmm. by accident. Yeah. And then runs this whole ski scam on her about how he just had the biggest business deal of his life and he's from yeah. Chicago and he doesn't know anybody, but he's got to celebrate. And he, he, he takes her to a hotel. She's like half acquiescent. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, I, I was supposed to meet my friends, but she, she goes to the hotel. He books a room by bribing the guy at the counter at, at, at the, at the front desk. Um, and, uh, and basically, um, he, uh, he, he basically talks her into sleeping with him. Yeah. Um, effectively, uh, talking about how we have this flow and don't break the flow between us and so <laughs> forth. But what's fascinating is she's in this black neighborhood and he keeps saying to her, like, you know, what are you doing here? Why are you in this neighborhood? Like you should. And she's, and she says, I was so scared all those black faces. So what is, what does folks do at this point? He corks up, which is the old like show business term for blackface. He burns a cork to ash and rubs it on his face. And she's like, you're crazy. What are you doing? He's like, it's not that big of a deal. And he, and he doesn't tell her his background per se, Mm -hmm. but he kind of makes the, you know, it's kind of funny that he makes the mockery of that and, and kind of uses, kind of uses that to disarm her while he, you know, has this, this, you know, this, 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 um, what's the adjective for it? This, this complicated background with his own Mm -hmm. race and where he fits in, you know, in terms of race, you know, race and, and, uh, racial, racial determinacy and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, during this sequence, um, uh, there's a, an editing technique that happens during this one that, um, is a reoccurring thing uh, when uh, O'Brien and Blue are separate. When O'Brien is making love to this woman, we're kind of cross-cutting between yes. the, him and uh, his new Cleo. companion. Oh, um, so the, the, yeah. white, the white woman is Susan. Susan. Susan played, yeah. by, played by yet another actor who's been in four things. Um, and Beverly then Ballard, yeah. Yeah, uh, and then uh, cut between Blue and... I think at one point she says she's his wife, which is Cleo, the, the yeah. Bernie Watson character. Yes. Um, they cross, and, and it's very interesting because uh, Susan is like completely enthralled with white folks, right? While Cleo looks bored to be yeah. in bed with Blue, right? Yeah, and it, it it's just these little touches like that. When any time that they're independent, um, the used continues to kind of um, dart back and forth between them to kind of demonstrate in what I took as just how these people can be so alike in their professional lives, but then also live totally different lives in the societies in which they are, I guess, uh, more welcomed or established or what have you. So I think it's very interesting. And we see this again and again throughout trick baby. By the um, way, by the way, a quick note, cause used was not very impressed with, uh, with Beverly Ballard. He, he said she was probably the, the weakest member of the cast, but, um, they, I guess they needed somebody who was willing to do nudity and what have you. But, um, mm-hmm. Josiah Howard, you know the the, the black exploita- black exploitation cinema text author, uh, had a had a line that stuck with me. He says um, the supporting players include Beverly Ballard as Susan, a woman whose loneliness is so vividly portrayed, you feel for a moment that you should turn away from the screen. Yeah. I thought was really interesting. Yeah, I agree with that. Also, in that text, um, I believe. 
um, as great as a book that is that he uh, oh the mistake er- yeah. Yeah, yeah he erroneously uh, mistakes Cleo for uh, Blue's daughter I believe right which is why um, she's so bored when she's in which is in, in, yeah. in sack with him right <laughs> right and, yeah, that, exactly. that, that was tasteful <laughs> anyway that's the save that's the save um, so now that O'Brien um, has kind of been introduced to the Susan character um, slowly but surely she brings him out um, to a party uh, amongst her friends and uh, immediately. Um, this is obviously a high society of um, Philadelphians. Uh, we see um, a bunch of um, Caucasian, you know, uh, powerful career men at a dinner really, table. Really, really pretentious, snotty, oh. you know, uh, yeah. um, s- snotty men who, who are completely what we would, you know, consider like 1% at this point, mm-hmm. um, who are just, who are literally like, Going back and forth between the problem with how you liberals deal with black people versus, versus how the conservatives. conservatives. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, used did some interesting things with editing here. He talks about how he, uh, how in that interview about his editing style, but it's like, it's that intertwined with like pictures of the black servants who are like handing out cigars yep. to, uh, you, you know, to, to this crowd of people. I, I think there's a bit of, um, you know, it reminds me some of the, not maybe the visual style, but some of some of the uh, messaging, especially on race, uh, that's a little sarca- that's a little sardonic, uh, reminds me a bit of what uh, Van Peebles did in Watermelon Man. Also, mm-hmm. one of my favorites from this era. Like, there's a certain wryness, but there's a message being delivered there. Yeah, yeah. Th- this is great because you know we we immediately see the- these. <laughs> You know, society of these people that are so blind to what they're arguing about, but, you know, making this an issue uh, between how liberals and conservatives differ on the issue. But, you know, at the heart of it, which is so ironic, but they just are are too blind to see it, is that they're both being so undeniably racist about everything about the um, African-American culture and, and, uh, you know, the poverty stricken citizens. So, um uh, O'Brien is just kind of eating his dinner along. Uh, and then something along the way, um, he sees something developing where he has um, sort of a pocket where he can kind of bri- uh, lure these guys in to a con that he's planning to do that involves um, a real estate development. He baits them with, you know, minimal information about a really high profile deal in, um, you know, a less than savory area of town. Uh, He's bought up this property for about 100K, but unbeknownst to, uh, you know, the the lower class citizens, he's going to turn this for about half a million dollars. So he's just baiting them a little bit, uh, you know, giving little tidbits here, walking away from the conversation and having these guys follow, you know, seemingly just enough condescending racism to these you know these quote ignorant you know black uh, uh, like uh, city dwellers just just the right baiting of of what these guys want to hear about how he's putting one over on these poor people yeah. right exactly very methodical too so he's baiting just enough leaving uh you know basically leaving them uh you know wanting more following him around um Susan doesn't want to be at this party anymore so he instructs her to get his coat ba- basically making it seem like this conversation is such an afterthought to him yeah. now um and uh eventually he said that you know the deal is tied up i can't really show you this property i've already made arrangements gets them just enough to the point where he will show them the property the following day but if they're really serious they need to bring ninety thousand in cash to ensure that 
if this is going to go, you need to be ready to do it yep. because anything could happen. And these guys take uh, take this information hook, line and sinker yep. um, again, you know, playing with the fact that O'Brien, again, a biracial man who we've now completely bought into how he can move and operate within this higher society, although he relates nothing to these people. Yeah, there, there's, there's some really there's some really fun scenes of him trying to negotiate a Cornish game hen. <laughs> uh, uh, speaking of I eat movies, a court, he's looking at a Cornish game hen and like he's like, I think he stops and looks inside it. It's actually yep. pretty interesting, like visual acting uh, because um, uh, because, yeah, he doesn't really belong there, but he's he's sharp enough to hear the things they're saying and turn them into enticements. He, he creates this whole scenario where he's got this deal planned and he has buyers and he just strings them along into the idea of the competition. Where if they can maybe squeeze themselves in before the imag- the imaginary buyers he's supposed to have, that he he can you know pull a con on them and try to get all the cash. Yeah, um, this is the beautiful thing too of just like you know seeing it, uh, you know unspool right before your eyes the difference between book smarts and street smarts. <laughs> and yeah, clearly and, street smarts is winning out here. And he rouses he rouses on a phone call he, he pretending to to call the um, and again. He, you know, this this ignorant this ignorant black man who's brokering the deal between his the other buyers and and the people in the neighborhood. When he calls Blue again, juxtaposing different people doing different things. Blue is right. at a card game that has been skillfully cut in between this 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 uh, posh you know dinner of of, of um, elite white people. He's at a card game and 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 he doesn't want to be bothered. But he but the the the. Uh, the guy who's answering the phone says, listen, it, it, it's folks. It's something serious. And uh, they set it up. And, and the next day, they're, it, they're already set up with a con. They've got these empty lots of land really using really using these, uh, th- th- these uh, you know, um, uh, uh, these empty lots in, in Philly, the, uh, the, the urban um, – I can't think of the term for – you know, that they used at the time. Basically, the the urban regeneration plans, you know, where mm-hmm. they're just clearing blocks to eventually hopefully pay for something. Uh, they, they hired a, uh, a, a crew uh, to mm-hmm. pretend that they were working on there. And Blue is already set up as this stuffy, you know, kind of kind of nerdy looking like uh, accountant or, or, you know, in an Real office that they've yeah. rented. Yeah. Um, yeah, real estate agent. He, but, you know, in, in an office full of, you know, filing cabinets and whatnot. And they run the whole routine. And these guys get these these guys who are like doctors just want to, you know, yeah. want to do something with their money and feel like they were they were getting over. Uh, they get sucked right into it. But they're forced to at the end, like really close to it. They're forced to get a a, a, a safety deposit box to hold the money till the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, which creates one of the first, which creates one of the first big problems here. Yeah. Um, before we move ahead, uh, you you hit upon yeah. something that we talked about before. Uh, again, uh, bouncing back to that cross cutting. When anytime, uh, folks, uh, again, you know O'Brien's character who goes by the the nickname White Folks, uh, the cross cutting between folks and Blue. I really love that moment again that Eust is doing, where we're 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 um, establishing folks in sort of this high society um, dinner, where he's obviously you know at, at the head table in the front of the house, juxtaposed with Blue and. It's interesting the setting too. It's um, where Blue is. He's playing a card game with you know other fellow uh, you know street hustlers and whatnot. You know um, 
Including in, Ted, including Ted Lang, yeah. including Ted Lang. Let us not forget Ted Lang. Um, he's playing uh, a game of cards, uh, but he's not. He's he, where he is. He, they're actually in the back kitchen of this bar or restaurant, which I think is a really interesting visual. Oh, is, um, that, is that third base, the central bar yeah, that, yes, that the, a lot of the action takes place in? Yeah, right. Amazing exactly right. location. That was a real bar. Yeah, yeah, real bar and and used apparently everybody that you see in these shots, those are real patrons too. all the extras in this film yep. are real patrons who frequent in this bar. So again, going back to this lived in very real experience that comes through because it is it's all real. So I, I love that about this film. Yep. It, it, you really take to. But again, this cross cutting is very, very interesting. It's not just simply two characters in two separate locations, where they are, what they're doing, how they're doing it. And, and it, it all feeds into um, the cultures that these characters operate in or are allowed to operate in given, um, you know, their, their race, um, uh, you know, seemingly. So it's very interesting. Their visual, and I, their visual appearance of race, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, again, it's, it's really um, really well done and, and incredibly smart too. I, I, um, I, I, I should, okay. To, to see, this is the problem of having, you know, too much of a liberal arts education. There's no such thing <laughs> as too much of a liberal arts education. <laughs> Never. Liberal, arts, liberal arts education is, is made, uh, is designed to teach people how to think. But I, I should say the visual uh, appearance of race, of course, race is a construct Mm -hmm. uh and it involves you know often visual depiction and so forth and i you know of course the voice in the back of my head saying wait you can't just say that uh go on sorry no but yeah no i mean that that's uh i just i i love that um that how used establishes that and, and how he does um you know just kind of kind of lays it out there uh you know in the camera work and editing style i think it really comes through um, but yeah, again, back to uh, this big, really this big con now in the making. Um, they've uh, made the safety deposit box. Now that's going to require two signatures. One, of course, being blue or uh, one, of course, being O'Brien. And then an, one of the three men that are now backing um, this big project. Uh, of course, uh, the whole plan is $90,000 um, is deposited into the safety deposit box. The plan between folks and and Blue now are to come back to the bank um, around 3 o'clock that same day to take the money out. Uh, folks gets um, kind of hung up because, uh, yeah. of course, um, Dot, Dot Murray, yeah, yeah the, uh, the um, African-American police officer who is uh, basically working now for this mobster, uh, is pretty much uh certain that these two are um the culprits behind everything so he's really trying to shake them down making sure um that these two are going to follow through and he wants to shake them down for i believe in the sum of five thousand dollars he wants to shake them down um and uh this you need to explain this sequence because i think you could probably explain this sequence better than i can but again <laughs> th this this is one of uh Similar to the opening sequence where it just establishes everything unbeknownst to the audience and plays this incredible um, con on us, we see this incredible um, sequence in uh, the double bar where Dot goes to shake down um, 
folks and blue to get these five thousand dollars and uh the two of them it's it's like watching them play jazz where nothing is scripted but they just kind of feed off of each other on how to handle the situation and how they're gonna make this where they're trying to come up with an idea where they can give um the money to dot without uh you know worrying about the mobster and you know ensuring that dot gets the money that they're not screwed for the money and whatnot so the how the how it's all it's all a rote routine and it's funny you say that because mel mel stewart of course was actually a saxophonist he was a jacks jazz saxophonist Mm -hmm. but go ahead you were saying how they do the 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 scheme you mean yeah how, how they do this scheme is so great so they basically they basically come to the conclusion that they are going to mail this five thousand dollars to uh the to the police department that yeah. uh dot or the precinct that dot um is at so uh they do this um where, <laughs> where they do blue, it they write a note inside it yeah they write, they write a, a note inside of it where basically if uh that it, it they write this note that basically will incriminate dot um in this uh in this whole scheme if if they're not if if you know dot doesn't kind of uh come through on his end for everything so in order to get the five thousand dollars blue says he's like i'm wearing a, a money strap like i can't just take it out here on the bar i gotta go to the bathroom so he goes to the bathroom which was shot in the bathroom of this bar it was an incredible. They, they talk t- they talk at length about about the actual shooting of this of this 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 scene inside the tiny bathroom yeah go on yeah incredibly claustrophobic um but this is incredibly done, and and I actually, after watching it, I had to rewind it to just kind of follow wh- how yeah. this all goes down because it's so smart. It's yeah. so smart, and it's so smooth too. Yeah, so smooth. Exactly. Again, these guys are professional con men, and and they they earn that in stride with this sequence alone. So Blue goes to the bathroom with these envelopes. He removes um a, a razor out of like the wall or behind the toilet or what have you, um. And he like slices the one envelope. He he takes toilet paper, rolls it up to the right consistency so that at least it'll feel like a wad of cash that's yes. going to be going in the envelope. He returns back to the bar where folks and Dot are. Uh, they write out the address. They write out the note. And and this is where where like I think if you know if you basically if you blink you're gonna miss what happens here. The wad of money. And you have to hold on, hold on, hold on, missing something here. One thing first: there's an important sleight of hand. There is yes. that there's a stack of other envelopes. Mm-hmm. He has like eight envelopes already on his person. Because yep. this this is also the point at which Dot tells them who it was they swindled. Because right. initially they deny it, and then they look at him like, "Oh fuck!" Like we. Yeah. We're in trouble now. So basically, he has this stack of envelopes. He's razor cut the bottom of one of them. And I'm maybe I don't understand this all that well either because it is it, it's shot fast because it's acted fast and it's a yeah. fast motion. Where there's a shot where he blue is holding the envelope in his left hand. In his right hand, he has the wad of five thousand dollars. He you see him putting it, presenting to Dot that he's putting it in the envelope. Okay. Yeah. And then immediately thereafter. He must. He, I think he drops with his left hand the envelope closer to the table so that you don't see the the five thousand dollars fall through the slit in the bottom of the envelope, mm-hmm. and I, I think right 
before that, I think right after that is when Dot grabs the envelope and, and he says, if those other envelopes have my name on them, like, I know you're fucking working a scheme. So he's already distracted, hence the sleight of hand, distracted by the stack of the other envelopes. Right. Meanwhile, the cash has fallen where where uh, where folks was was ready to catch it. Yeah, that is what I mean. It's like explaining it doesn't even do it justice because yeah. you're going to watch it and then you're going to want to rewind it to see if you properly saw what you just saw. Yes. But it's incredibly smooth and incredibly yeah. well done. So, of course, they do not put the five thousand dollars in this uh into this envelope they go out to the street uh you know put uh put the letter into the mailbox everything is seemingly good and this is essentially buying time now um for blue and folks uh, and i think um i got a little bit ahead of myself so this takes place um slightly before this and then the next day mm. uh after this whole real estate deal of of you know kind of luring these uh these high society guys to kind of take part in this and deposit the ninety thousand dollars into the safe deposit box uh folks and blue have an arrangement that they're gonna get back to the bank by three this same yes. day to take the ninety thousand dollars out of course we see that folks get sidelined by dot who is again hassling him to ensure that he's not skipping town not pulling a scheme on him yep. and what have you and of course this delays him enough we're now the bank is closed. Yes. The bank is closed. They can't get the money out. And of course, the next day, these same three guys are supposed to come with them to the bank to seal this deal that isn't an actuality. Yeah. Um, all the and, while. And, and, yeah. and you could be, I think you can be forgiven. Anyone can be forgiven for losing some of the details and the chronology of all this, all this. Because as soon as, based, the way the film is structured, as soon as we realize as soon as Dot realizes what has happened, that that these two guys and he knew who they were already, uh, these two guys have have ripped off the wrong person. It's literally the movie is is various dominoes falling. It's oh, yeah. various points of uh, of misfortune. The walls are closing in, yeah. The walls closing in this movie, so it's actually like it's accelerating, and you don't and and you would be it's accelerating. And the viewer knows this. And the and the thing is, the main, the principal characters arguably do not. Or they are learning it at a pace slower than we are, which is, I suppose, common in films. But the, the pace of their impending doom is accelerating. But these two guys, by virtue of how much they need to pull cons, want to pull cons, con each other, or are conning themselves – they're at different places with this. And, and and that's and that's what you kind of focus on. You you could kind of forget when it is that Dot, who is getting more and more frustrated, the cop, because he knows there's a there's a potential payoff there before the inevitable happens. Right. Um, because this is really like used to refer said he wasn't plan making it at the time as such, but he said, but upon revisiting the movie, he's like, This is a classic tragedy. This yeah. movie is a tragedy. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that in and of itself for a black themed, quote unquote, uh, film of the 70s um, makes this movie singular uh, combined with the locations, the mood. Um, just one more one more line from Pinkerton uh, mm -hmm. that I thought was interesting. He, he, he referred to the film as, quote, because he did an interview with, with both uh, Izzy Mankowski, the DP and used. He refers to uh, a trick baby as a sensitively performed cliche abhorrent 
totally sui generis black exploitation effort. This this film doesn't feel like anything else. Um, so again, the, the you know losing the chronology of things getting a little crazier and 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 the and and the, and the hunt for them accelerating, it's really easy to do. Yeah, it's and and as this thing you know the tension is mounting, it's so palpable in this film. As we said, the walls are closing in and, and it's like the train has left the station. And just like the two lead characters were barely hanging on to see if these two characters can kind of keep it together. And an interesting thing is, as you mentioned, I, th I think the dominoes falling is a perfect analogy for this. The blue character, of course, kind of seen as like the wise one who kind of taught uh, folks, you, you know, the art of the con the roles are slowly becoming reversed now where folks has learned well enough when it's time, you know, to pack it in and get out when the con is no longer good. And when the right. con is not something that they can achieve anymore, but blues greed is kind of getting the best of him. And, uh, he wants to walk away with this 130 K and folks keeps repeatedly telling him it's not going to happen. You either take yeah. this or you, you know, you lose your life, but blue doesn't really want to have it. He wants both. So we're seeing a, a shift here, a, a real uh, role reversal here where now they're kind of caught in this crosshair where one wants this money. Folks knows well enough where we have, you know, the mobster is, is clearly aware of them. His goons are now searching for them as well as dot. So the walls are again, steadily closing in on them. And what the movie does at this point that's interesting, besides involving some other characters and another con and so forth, it, it, it subtly shifts the audience's attention to the relationship and the stress upon the relationship between these two men. Mm -hmm. Is it is it exactly familial? Is it exactly paternal? We don't really know that. And and it's interesting because I think we're gonna we're gonna come back to this soon. Maybe this is uh, this is gonna be uh, connective tissue between this uh, this uh, this episode and maybe what we do next. We'll see. Is <laughs> we'll there see. is is the complicated but nuanced um, and rarely shown relationship between two men because it's not exactly paternal, but you could see that as much as folks knows that uh, the walls are, are, are falling in on them, you know, that the, the, the are closing in on them, that he has such an affection for blue um, mm -hmm. and, and, and such a connection to him that he knows he should get out, but it doesn't quite go that way. And, and, and we, as the audience are, are meant to think there's something there. There's something there between them. That's emotional. That's significant. Um, but, uh, and maybe that's one of the points at which the con fades away because the con is consistent through the whole thing, the whole uh, thing, yeah. not just being alliterative. It's like the idea of conning and getting over and getting over is addictive. Getting mm -hmm. away with shit is addictive. Breaking oh, yeah. the law is addictive. Um, but the, the, that could be the one place where we see a little bit more, um, a little bit more raw humanity that is not part of the con. But anyway, so you, right. you um, but, but one of the best scenes in the movie is that scene between the two of them in the car. Um, yeah. Because when blue suddenly realizes things have gone much further than he, you know, than, than he, uh, than he thought he does something else that I can't think of many other movies uh, or any other movie offhand of this genre of the, uh, that falls into this category. It's more of a category than a genre mm -hmm. where he starts talking about how 
he's happy he prepaid the the funeral home. Right. Yeah. It's just like wow. It's it's just it's it's like now you've got characters who are like actually talking about their mortality. Yeah. You know, in in a con man in this kind of movie. Yeah. Right. And again, that goes. You know, now now we're seeing a sequence um, where these two characters we're bridging the gap here, where where we've seen um, folks and blue in various moments of this film uh, in separate areas, and we're cross cutting and seeing how these different societies and these people operate in different societies of of the city and now we're in this very intimate scene which again is is it's incredibly impactful throughout the film and we're talking about that the whole mortality thing and i think that it, it just goes to show you how this society lives this is a very different specific yeah. kind of way where these guys are you know a, a guy like blue has prepaid for you know his funeral service whereas the high society guys that folks was trying to con earlier they you know that's the farthest thing that they're thinking about is death you know like they're it's it's all about living a lavish lifestyle and stuff so again it's these really intimate um methodically placed things that i think is a total um credit to slim and used and and just how it's carried out by these really really nuanced and you know, for for my money, underrated performances. They're just fantastic. I want to talk quickly about a couple performers. Quickly, I mentioned Vernie Watson, uh, who plays Cleo, um, who is one of the few people who actually uh, who actually holds who holds uh, the fire to uh, to Blue's feet by saying, "You're like you might be the biggest liar in Philadelphia," mm-hmm. which is which is pretty great. But Vernie yeah. Watson is uh, still going, still like uh, a, you know a senior actor especially in television. Um, she's in Cotton Comes to Harlem. Norman, Is That You?, which I already mentioned this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the very, very uh, popular TV movie, Boy in the Plastic Bubble, with a young Travolta. Um, 13 episodes of Welcome Back, Cotter. Five episodes of The Love Boat. She's in Showdown in Little Tokyo, and a lot of people will remember her from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. She's also from North Trenton, New Jersey. Hey! Um, so, Jersey uh, girl. And- I mentioned... Yeah. Did you notice uh, an interesting tidbit about her? And I probably should have researched it a little bit more. She apparently testified as a witness in Michael Jackson's 2005 child molestation trial. For the defense. For the defense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah, very interesting. Um, I mentioned Ted Lang before. He, of course, is Isaac, your bartender on the love boat. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, okay, well, well, just just quickly uh, before I get, you know, I want to talk about Mel Stewart a little bit too, but um, and I did jump ahead with some of the character stuff, but again, the, the you know the run, the 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 flight, the the intensification of Dot's craziness when he realizes he might not get this money when he receives this uh, this phony envelope and realizes things are getting more and more out of hand. Yeah, uh, Nino Pirelli's uh, thugs. Are like well, we don't trust that black bastard cop anyway. Um, so they're uh, tailing the cop as the cop is tailing. So they start tailing the cop, you. and the cop knows it, and the cops like you know sees things slipping out of his grasp potentially. Um, he he runs he he ends up at Blue's place, finds Cleo. This is another thing. He finds Cleo Vernie Watson. He finds her with another guy. Mm-hmm. It's never exactly clear. She says she's Blue's wife, but. I don't know if she's potentially turning tricks, if that's her guy on the side. I don't know exactly what's going on. Yeah, it's just sort of thrown there, yeah. 
But Dot Dot uh, scares her at her place. She ends up going to the pictures all night and then hanging out at the bar. She's afraid to go home. Mm-hmm. Um, in the process, Folks gets shot because he comes by the house and then ends up in this pretty intense foot chase that Keel Martin actually did all the stunts himself into yeah. the, the Italian the, market. Um, this sequence yeah. is like <laughs> what what the car chase sequence in the French connection is this yeah. is this is the like B-side foot chase for my mm-hmm. money. I thought that it was so absorbing. Again, this fast pace, very tense. Um, yeah, where Dot is pursuing folks and uh, he gets shot. He shoots him in the arm. But yeah, like you said, uh, you know, um, Martin does all of his own stunts in this one. And it totally comes through because it's a very chaotic, frantic sort yep. of um, filming. We get some great aerial shots where obviously the camera is positioned on top of, um, you know, tenement buildings. So we're seeing the action unfold at moments from above, which is really interesting, which you can see all of these crowded people are real people on the streets like they're these right. are not like paid actors or what have you so again all living in you know all adding into the authenticity uh, of uh, you know and the realness of the environment but yeah this again you know the dominoes continue to fall here and this foot chase is just really you know the the next bad thing that's happening to these con men absolutely um and and he and to, to pirelli again dot mentions these are two colored hustlers um, I want to mention some of the other movies quickly that really wrote that, that, that of this period of time, this is 72. It's still pretty early for black cinema oh, totally, uh, or the yeah. beginning, uh, the beginning more or less, um, you know, 70, 71. But um, depending on which, uh, which films you, you, you prioritize um, uh, some of the other, uh, some of the other stuff that comes to mind of this period of time, uh, Jason Miller and the nickel ride, uh, I don't know if you've seen that one. It's a very yeah, like it. It, it has a similar. It's it, it's interesting because Jason Miller plays. Uh, I don't want to go off into this too much, but he plays um, the guy who's in charge of a bunch of warehouses that are all being used by organized crime, and he has mm-hmm. a certain amount of power until the um, the 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 machinations of organized crime decide to deal him out. Uh-huh. And it has that. It has that same kind of like. Well, this is just how it goes. This is the, the, the this is the business of crime, and and you're not valuable anymore. Uh, Cisco Pike, if you've ever seen Cisco, Cisco Pike, is fantastic. If you haven't seen it, mm-hmm. uh, Gene Hackman, speaking of the French Connection, plays uh, a great dirty cop in it, who's who's basically leaning on um, Chris Christopherson, a drug dealer, uh, for his own payout. He wants his own payout, and then you know, I know some people don't care for it very much but i really have a soft spot for harry in your pocket mm-hmm. uh, the uh the pickpocket movie that really that really That's coburn right it's james coburn walter pigeon michael sarazen uh and um trish vanderveer mm-hmm. uh shot in like uh, uh washington seattle vancouver etc washington state that is uh and uh it's really painting a picture of the end of a life, the end of a style of crime where even in the seventies, there's a, there's a line in it and credit cards and charge cards existed that period of time, but there's a line in it where they say, eventually 
people won't carry cash anymore. We'll all be hooked up to some huge computer bank system and it'll all be credits and whatever. Mm -hmm. And the Walter Pigeon, the senior character to Coburn who says that line is like, impossible. That's communism. It'll never happen. And that's like, you know, but it's another, it's another dark like picture of the seventies as the end of an era of some, you know, something that had, that had that had worked, especially criminally, especially especially in a way of of criminal survival in the past. Yeah. So the the idea of of conning uh, of uh, of the confidence game hasn't gone away per se, but there is the air of these guys uh, at the level they're at and and with the knowledge they have quickly in Trick Baby are out of their depth. They're yeah. quickly like things are much more serious than they realize. And and the copy that's pretty much the same thing, by the way, on the DVD and the Blu-ray, mm-hmm. sort of alludes to that, but it's not very it's not very well written. It's, it doesn't yeah. really do it do it a lot of credit. There's another con that happens, by the way, uh, on the street where they run into uh, Fuddle Bagley, who is, is actually the actor the, the name the actor uses, who mm-hmm. uh, turns out he wants to re- he wants to turn around whatever con. And I think we even get the details of it. He wants to turn around whatever con and actually shoot folks. Yeah. So th- th- there's a bit of comedy there, but also a, a, an air of real menace. Yeah. And uh, it's almost and, like and it's, it's also like a, a mildly fourth wall breaking, too, which is funny. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It, it is. It is. But but it, it sets up the idea that these guys don't need to run a con, but they're kind of like passing the time and, and, and they're there for the thrills, which is interesting because it, 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 it it's then used to show a bit of the difference between where folks's head is at versus where blue's head is at blue's like you just got 50 bucks in a half hour that was pretty good right and, right and they're again things are not getting better for them they're getting worse folks yeah. says you should get into a a, a white hood you know a, you should, a white neighborhood uh get away from this whole action and mm-hmm. um yeah and then there's this quick scene where you know uh where um just unsettling uh, but uh, where he where folks reunites, he's been shot. He reunites with Susan. He mm-hmm. goes back to her her to, to her hotel room, I think. Yeah, he goes back to her hotel room, obviously, because, you know, again, the walls are closing in and, and both folks and blue have very little places left to go. I mean, it seems like everybody's looking out for them now. Uh, um, you know, every prostitute out on the street is looking out for them, uh, you know, for the for the mobster character. He goes back to Susan's apartment in hopes that Susan will like uh, take care of him and what have you. Um, the Susan apartment, that's right. Thank yeah, you. the apartment. Susan couldn't be happier to, uh, you know, uh, be with him and um, nurse his wounds. Well, she's and completely whatnot. oblivious. She's completely, completely oblivious. Yeah, completely and, and oblivious. Maybe, maybe this speaks to the whole idea of her loneliness. But um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, she, uh, uh, you know, and, you know, in, in his... Uh, you know, in his moment of great pain and, you know, uh, barely trying to, you know, you know, keep his senses about him. Susan attempts to seduce him, trying to have sex with him in this moment uh, to mm-hmm. which he is like, that is the farthest thing from his mind from a guy who's been shot. Um, yeah. And yeah, there there uh, she has this, you know, very harsh sort of reaction to that. And I think it does speak um, to a loneliness in her. Um but again, also uh, a person that's operating on a completely different plane than what 
you know, folks or somebody like Blue are. It's it, again, it's it's just this whole divide between what yeah. this per, you know, what where her needs and um desires are to where you know the the predicament that now uh, Blue and folks have found themselves in. So he right. quickly bails from this, um, from this apartment. He eventually does reunite with Blue, and uh, I know we were talking about performances before, but we did hold off on one particular yeah, yeah. performance, uh, and it's leading to this where uh, the two of them, again, of course, O'Brien still nursing that wound for hours at this point. Uh, folks in Blue uh, happen upon this uh, street preacher oh, um, yes, 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 by the yes, name yes. of Josephus, who's played by the fantastic Josephus. Josephus, yeah. Josephus thank you, um, played by the great uh, Klebert Ford. And this is a man that has gone uh, gone back um, many years with Blue, and uh, he they basically come to him because they have nowhere else to go, and Blue just wants to kind of uh, you know, kind of lean on his good graces to you know for for him to harbor them while you know uh-huh. everybody is is looking out for them. And again, a, a total testament again to to Blue and Cleo not missing a beat, even in in their greatest hour of peril. Blue tells this incredible, long-winded, unbelievable, emotional story about how they ended up where they are with um, folks being shot because um, Josephus makes it very clear that if they're in trouble with the law, he doesn't want any part of this. But of course, being being who Blue is and and how he can kind of, he, you know... He is a hustler, to- and if you're not a hustler, you're a sucker. You're a sucker, exactly. One of the greatest lines in this film um, that he says earlier on in this film. Um, But uh, he tells this whole long-winded, incredible story where at at some point, although we've been watching this film the whole time, he's so convincing that it almost makes you think, wait, did this actually happen? Like, he's so good at weaving these stories and and kind of, uh, you know, getting people to see his side of things where... Josephus is completely bold. Josephus, Josephus. Josephus. I'm sorry, but he, the Josephus character is phenomenal. One of probably one the singular most un, you know underrated uh, side uh, supporting performances in this film. He's fantastic. This actor, fair. Very fair, um, yeah. so great. So he has after hearing this wild story, um, agrees. Which is tail, which is tailored to him because it's peppered with like I don't know who made me do that. Maybe it was Jesus. You know, it's peppered. Yeah, exactly. It's peppered to his. It's completely spiced to like the idea of a reverend, Reverend Josephus. It, it, it to, to to his sensibilities of I don't know what it was that that, that protected me that day. Maybe it was Jesus, and it, <laughs> that's the voice so, of Jesus. Yeah, and there's and framing of the shot where like. Josephus is being sucked in and blue is just spinning the yarn so, so easily. Mm-hmm. You actually see, you know, gunshot and, and kind of on the floor, you kind of see Keel Martin just looking up like, like the story. I, wow. Like he, 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 and he even says, I almost believed it. Yeah. When Josephus, <laughs> Josephus leaves the room and there's that beautiful, cause it's all about, these two fools from back down south, back home in the in the south where they're both from, and how they got into this whole, you know, this whole issue with uh, and blues bringing but, up people yeah. from their past that Josephus yes. recalls and remembers. So it's a very personal story. So Josephus leaves the room, and then Blue and and folks and things are they know things are getting bad. They know things are are are, are, are dire, and, and he, he's like, and folks says. 
I, I started to, I started to believe that myself. And he goes, did, did, did you leave anything out? And Blue goes, yeah, the parachute jump. <laughs> but yeah. again again this again going back to like way back in the beginning where i said that as fast-paced and gritty as this film is it is an it is oftentimes very very funny too and this is an expert but it's example dry. it's dry like, it's what, dry what, but wow yeah. what what a way for that to as he's you know unspooling this 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 ta- this tall tale that is emotional and deep and sounds so real and authentic to kind of just have the pin popped in it with with uh folks's um comment there it's just it's so well done it's and so Klebert so well Ford Klebert Ford Klebert uh always makes me think of a, a Caribbean name a great great name Klebert mm-hmm. Ford uh has a has a, a small but significant body of work he's in across 110th Street uh Grease Lightning Nighthawks uh, shows up in New Jack City, uh, A Rage in Harlem, which I said earlier, mm-hmm. mentioned earlier on. Uh, I'd really want to do that movie if we can. Uh, Malcolm X in 92. And I will always remember him in Ghost Dog. Oh, because wow. in Ghost Dog, if you remember, uh, I, I always like that one. If you remember Ghost Dog, they're kind of looking for all the guys who have uh, pigeon coops on the tops mm-hmm. of the buildings. Yeah. And he's one of the mistaken identity guys. So the, the, the uh, so, so like at one point they kill a native American who, who says, you know, stupid fucking white man. Cause they shoot some, some uh, uh, pigeons. Mm-hmm. Klebert Ford is, is, is a heavy set black man, obviously uh, who looks somewhat like um, Forrest Whitaker, the lead of ghost dog. Mm-hmm. And he's raising pigeons on the roof and they see him. And, th- and he just turns around and he sees these two, you know, these two older mafia uh, thugs with guns. And he goes, fellas, what's going on? And then they shoot him. <laughs> but he, he, again, it's one of those he's one of these scrappy uh, kind of supporting actors like rough hewn. But he's memorable. He has yeah. his two seconds. He gets killed. And as soon as I looked at him and I'm like, yeah, I, I, ghost dog. I remember. I remember yeah. that. Totally. Yeah. And yeah, he he he's a he's a terrific presence, and you know, fantastic. And that's especially coming in so late in the picture, what kind of um, an indelible impact that he leaves on Trick Baby. So he's fantastic. So, and the oh, the other line, by the way, from Blue in that scene, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. He goes, "Lion takes my mind off my troubles." Yes, that is one of my favorite lines in it. Yeah, um, and again, you know, through and through, it's just demonstrating that this this is so embedded in their dna the lying the scheming the conning this is who these characters are you know through thick and thin through high times through bad times this is this is the abcs of blue and folks like this is what it is um so eventually uh we get to the moment uh you know we're uh, kind of uh, nearing um the end of the film uh now we're uh you know against this better judgment blue still wants that money so um, they finally uh, or they no, go back to the bar. They, right? they go back. They go back to the third base. Uh, and um, is Cleo at this? Yeah, Cleo. This still is in where the bar, this, yeah. this is where Cleo has been hiding because she won't go back home. And the uh, the two hit the two mafia thugs are in the bar. Right. And she gets upset with him, calls him the biggest liar and so forth. He's like, you, you just don't understand. You don't understand. And then she yells out the name Blue. Blue. Yeah. Yeah. And and then he starts to walk away, um, and 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 the two thugs know they're looking for a guy named Blue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So he walks out of the bar, and they approach him, and 
like a light switch, never missing a beat. They approach him asking if he's blue and he turns around and he goes, uh, are you blue Howard? And he goes, no, blue Montgomery, Reverend blue Montgomery. Like, I, I, no, but I'm commonly mistaken for blue Howard. So, yeah. And I'm, I've like, known him for over 20 years. Yeah. Oh, have you seen him lately? Yeah. About 40 minutes ago at this bar or whatnot. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's at that, uh, at that point, um, He's kind of spent, you know, obviously uh, fibbing to them. And then then uh, Dot comes onto the scene, uh, approaching them, uh, you know, making he knows exactly who it is. So he uh, attempts to take a shot. Uh, he runs in yelling, he's mine. Yeah, he's mine. And then the, the two mobsters whip their pieces out, too. Uh, shots are fired and they hit blue um, in the chest. Uh, but right not after the, shooting, they, they shoot dot first though, right? They shoot dot first. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. They shoot dot first. Um, so there's j just bullets are flying bloods everywhere and whatnot. Um, and you know, uh, blue obviously takes a hit to the chest, uh, folks, um, approaches him in this really intimate, um, emotional kind of send off where I guess, you know, the last bit of sort of fatherly advice, which of course is just, you know, you know, lifelong con advice that blue yeah. sort of reminds folks to take with him about, you know, uh, you know, not to play, uh, cons on, uh, he says something about like the handicap or blind or something, yeah, uh, a, 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 avoid marks who are wearing black or on their way back from the, uh, from a funeral, the, funeral right. uh, avoid, 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 like avoid uh, marks who have a stutter. They're jinxy. Yeah, they're jinxy. pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Even in and, this moment too, is that like it's emotional, but there's still like a a little bit of humor kind of peppered throughout the things that he's telling folks, which so, is great. But what happens is that is that Dot is shot, and then Blue is shot, and the two hitmen are like, what about this other guy? Because well, folks comes out of the pickup truck that they borrowed from Josephus. Mm -hmm. And he approaches and the other, one of the, one of the thugs goes, no, no, no. I said it was a colored guy. Colored guy. They, right. they use the, they use the N word, I think. But nevertheless, and they leave the scene not shooting folks because he has passed again. Right. They never, Dot never told them that folks is, is a uh, passes for white. They were looking for another a black, black man, guy. Yeah. Right, exactly. And again, this all just goes to the tragedy of the film, obviously, with uh, with folks losing, you know, you know, uh, you know, his partner in crime. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's just uh, a tragedy too. obviously on that very obvious um, sense. But, you know, it, just the imbalance that I guess the character of folks must feel in society, you kind of feel that of not being accepted by you know, uh, a black community on a grand scale because of the way that he looks and then, you know, never really being accepted by, you know, white culture because he doesn't seem to fit in or at least he doesn't feel um, a part of what that lifestyle is. So th there's mm -hmm. a lot there's a lot of heavy stuff and layers to both of these characters. But, yeah, it this is a really powerful, gritty underrated fucking film and i really yeah. wish more people see it for sure well, I'm, gl I'm glad you dug it but uh, i want to note also that at this scene where blue is dying or has died and and uh folks is kneeling above him on a sidewalk in front of the third base bar cleo comes out sees what has happened screams and as the camera use talks about this final shot Mm -hmm. The camera draws back slowly, all, uh, you know, all, basically across the street, 
but you see Cleo turn around and go back into the bar and just yeah. leave folks above Blue's body as the camera just, you know, draws out. And uh, I want to I want to make a note of uh, of, uh, of the conductor, the composer James Bond, mm-hmm. um, who is um, most likely it's Jimmy Bond, who occasionally went by James Bond. Jimmy nice. Bond, a Philadelphia. Well, he went by he went by James Bond uh, when he had James Bond and his sextet, which did an album of James Bond covers done jazz style. But Jimmy Bond is a Philadelphia born, incredibly, was a Philadelphia born, incredibly prolific band leader, tuba player, bassist in jazz outfits, played with Chet Baker, Gerald Wilson, Henry Mancini, Lalo Schifrin, Louis Belson, you know, in different uh, groups, orchestras, combos, Uh, Art Pepper, the Crusaders, Paul Horn, Paul Mower, um, Really nice job on the score. It, it, it ranges. It's never very yeah. obtrusive, but in certain points, in certain points, he, he, you know, really an expert, an expert composer. This guy. In certain parts, it's very bluesy. It's very jazzy. It, it, it relies on percussion and exciting points for the uh, exciting percussion drive for like chase scenes and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, so again, a, a, a bit of a surprise. Not a major name guy. Because uh, he was mostly working in in group settings and in in in, in larger bands, but uh, another point at which I think this this production, which uh, looks very you know kind of low budget and naturalistic, really excels with a great score as well. Yeah, which never which never came out on, on as far as I know. But yeah, which is really unfortunate because again in that same on disc interview with Used, he talks specifically about this score and how um, you know impactful it was i I mean it really is um a a a heartbeat um to the film it really acts as like a character in and of itself and to have um a composer so in the pocket of what he's doing and kind of operating you know know, without even really realizing it but he's he just operates and nails the time that this is taking place Mm. and so well that i i I think it, it just breathes a timelessness into the production so yeah very 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 well done um you know i was just gonna say um you know we've obviously talked about um you know a lot uh, about our two leads but uh yeah kale martin um phenomenal in this um i know some critics at the time didn't find him um particularly believable in the sense of him um you know satisfy you know effectively pulling off a biracial man i disagree with that um i thought that uh as much as he might not appear to look like it i think that the way that the film is orchestrated from um the earliest sequence through and the the relationship that blossoms between him and blue i'm sold i think that he's really good he's a very talented actor um i think probably best known for his role on hill street blues um left us pretty early at the age of 46 uh from lung cancer back in 1990 he was a heavy drinker um chain smoker and uh yeah did a lot of uh, did a lot of coke apparently did a lot of coke yeah did a lot of coke but uh good good actor um and then of course uh, his co-star mel stewart the great mel stewart uh appeared in tons of stuff uh least of which newman's law of course and uh 
uh, a film that I just actually revisited um, uh, about a week or two ago, uh, Bride of Reanimator, but a uh, uh, great, great actor was in plenty of stuff. Um, there... I thought you were going to say Dead Heat, but go on. Yeah, <laughs> I should. That's uh, that's actually on um, uh, the pile nearest to me uh, as we speak. Um, but yeah, they're they're great. Um, you know, at the time of this film, an independent production um, with very few familiar faces, if any. Um, as it was filming, but yeah, the two of them are great. The chemistry is fantastic. Direction spot on. Um, I thought, you know, without having read, um, slim source material, you can tell that use took great pride in bringing that voice and that rawness, uh, to the screen and, you know, sight unseen for my money i think that he did a good job it's just unfortunate that as he does mention on the uh on disc interview that he never did get to see uh, or speak to slim uh he doesn't even know if slim ever saw the film but uh i would like to think that uh slim would probably have been proud with uh what he accomplished it's hard to say it's hard to say uh, mel stewart is one of my favorites by the way uh i want to quickly run through some of it uh first of all he was in the um so many actors of this period of time, and it bleeds right into the 80s, especially in television work, came out of acting or comedy troops. He'd be there, the mm-hmm. Ace Trucking Company. Mel Stewart came out of the committee. It was actually – he was part of the uh, the Los Angeles branch of the committee. I think it started in San Francisco. So the L.A. branch included Peter, Peter Bonners, Mel Stewart, Barbara Bosson, Jessica Myerson, Richard Stahl, Dick Stahl, who's an enormous amount of television, um, Catherine Ish, Gary Goodrow, Howard Hessman, Carl Gottlieb, Chris Ross, and Rob Reiner. So he was one of the original ones in the in the committee from 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 uh, L.A. Mm-hmm. He's in seven episodes of Car 54. He plays a con man in Cool World. Mm-hmm. Um, he's in the uh, very, very important black film, uh, Nothing But a Man, from 1964. Uh, five episodes of the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, which he also wrote. He wrote a uh, film with the committee as also uh, one of the films that the committee uh, starred in entirely themselves. Three episodes of Julia, enormous amount of TV work, all yeah. the major black-themed uh, or black-cast sitcoms uh, or television shows of the, of the 70s and 80s he seems to have appeared on. He's in The Landlord, the Hal Ashby film from 70, Scorpio in 73, Kid Blue, the revisionist Western with Dennis Hopper, also in 73. You mentioned Newman's Law, a very TV production, but I got a soft spot for it. He shows up in two episodes of The Love Boat. A lot of Love Boat here. Um, <laughs> you love your Love Boat. Good for you. I grew up watching The Love Boat and trying to stay awake uh, as a kid for um, Fantasy Island, of course. Of course. Uh, I said I mentioned Dead Heat, where he has a line. He's the he's the police chief in Dead Heat, where he has a line about um, uh, nailing these fuckers to the wall with a 12-inch railroad spike. I don't <laughs> know why that's in my mind, but it is. You mentioned Bride of Reanimator, but one of the ones that I really love that he's great in the best of for my money, the best of the three Sidney Poitier, um, Bill Cosby movies. Let's do it again, where mm-hmm. he plays the trainer to J.J. Walker's to Jimmy Walker's um, uh, Nebishi uh, boxing uh, Nebishi boxer Bootney Farnsworth. He's the <laughs> trainer, and it's it, it's it's a great movie. It's a great, totally fun film. I know Cosby is a hard sell at this point, but um, that's one of the better ones. Uh, And um, yeah. And so uh, Marshall, Marshall Backler, Backler, uh, producer of this started out producing with Noel Black, Noel Black, uh, who he, he, so 
Backler and Black did uh, Skater Dater, the uh, skateboarding short from 66. They also did maybe Noel Black's best movie, Pretty Poison, in 68. Uh, Used at one point said there was potentially interest by Black or Backler to use Noel Black to direct this movie, but something happened, and that's part of the reason he called him up. And then Backler, you know, made, he, he makes, uh, he makes um, Homebodies and uh, Trick Baby, the two films that, uh, that Larry Eust is both very respected for. He makes the Texas Dynamite Chase, a kind of so-so like Southern Fried Drive-In movie. That seems to be the end of his producing career. Mm-hmm. Um, James Levitt was, the, was his co-producer, executive producer, who is from the same family, uh, the Levitt family that made Levittown in Long Island. There is a quick mention of the other, another Levittown in the movie, which is probably deliberate, but there is a Levittown in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, not too far outside of Philly or greater Philly area. Yep. Um, as we said, Larry Eust basically made two movies and otherwise has made shorts, has had a career in screenwriting, though. Uh, and I'm assuming some of that is like ghostwriting or selling scripts or script doctoring or something along those I imagine lines. imagine so, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, Izzy Mankowski, as of today at least, uh, Philip Baker Hall died today, by the way, or died yes. yesterday. He came public today, unfortunately. Age 90, it, yeah. Age 90. As of today, Larry Eust is still around, but his longtime partner and DP, Izzy Isidore uh, Mankowski, had passed away um, in March of 2021. Uh, Mankowski has n- about n- about 100 credits as a DP wow. or cinematographer, including he's uncredited as the DP on Carrie. Get the fuck it, out of here. Really? It's listed. I don't know. I don't know what it means. Wow. Or at least camera department. I'm not, I'm not sure. We got to get the uh, crackpot IE movies team on that because that's that's fascinating. Uh, yeah, we'll see. Better off dead. He's the DP on one crazy summer. Skin deep. The Blake Edwards movie with the glow in the dark condom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, John Ritter. A, yeah, a ton of uh, TV movies, including the Ewoks TV movie and the Burning Bed. Several Magnum PI episodes and the Muppets movie. So Isidore Mankowski, um, who does a really beautiful job photographing really gritty realistic environments because they were realistic environments in this movie yeah. had quite the career um if larry used uh had quite the career in in, in hollywood if larry used unfortunately did not yeah incredible uh incredible credits um i'm glad you dug this one it's really I, it's really its own thing right i sure did yeah i mean th- this this far exceeds um you know, just the idea of of merely a great black exploitation film. I think I mentioned it early on. It's it's a really fantastic deconstruction of the genre, um, mm. but so much more than that. Um, I believe it was also it also went uh, by the alternate title of the Double Con, which I think is probably a m- slightly more fitting title for it. Although the title is uh, Sliv's original source material, so it's better to stick with that. Um, but yeah, I, I think that this film is great again just to reiterate i mean it's fast paced it's gritty it's very funny at times um but it's a really phenomenal uh street level tale that examines so many things like racial identity greed friendship all of this stuff is there um and of course uh you know this 
fantastic uh, chemistry that we see uh, that we see between Kale Martin and Mel Stewart. Uh, they will just blow you away with um, the tall tales that they weave and the con games that they run on people throughout this film until, of course, the walls uh, close uh, in on them. Uh, again, it's also really cool to see a film set in the city of Brotherly Love, Philadelphia, because I feel like sure. in so many of these films that are set in really... Um, you know, fast pace uh, cities. It's typically like New York or Chicago or Los Angeles. So that was a nice, um, that was a nice change up and surprise to see this set in Philadelphia. Again. Have you seen, have you, have you watched Homebodies yet? Which is a keynote. I disc haven't. Before. Yeah. I just, I got it not too long ago, but I didn't really, really fantastic. And that movie was another one. Eust says he really loves cities and looking at cities. That's another one with an unconventional choice because they had a few options uh, it centers around um, urban renewal. That was the term I was thinking of. Urban renewal was the was the popular thing in cities at this point, yeah. um, for better or for worse. Uh, but that movie is shot in Cincinnati because oh. they needed a row of houses, a location of a row of houses to set all these elderly uh, ca characters in that was at risk of, of being demolished in an area of urban renewal. Mm. Um and uh, and 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 they found that in Cincinnati, and 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 so you have these two movies again, very distinctive, both very good. I really liked Homebodies. The, if you, the sense of humanity that is really a big current, a, a strong current running through this film to Trick Baby, it's even stronger in Homebodies, as is the humor. There's a yeah. very strong black humor to homebodies um and that they're both in you know philly and cincinnati you know un unusual unusual locations nice yeah I, I that's and that one was one that i know uh took a considerable amount of time to come to home video i think it was elements or what have you but it did finally come so yeah i uh i'm really excited to tackle that one especially coming off of the high of trick baby so certainly implore uh you know implore our listeners to check that out reminder again guys trick baby still available from Scorpion releasing yep. on Blu-ray. Um, a great 27-minute interview with Larry Houston on it, as well as the theatrical trailer. Film looks great, sounds great, so definitely check that out. Always want to support um, our independent labels. Um, but I think that wraps it up uh, for I Eat Movies, number 24, Mike's number first time 24. with Trick Baby. 24. Trick Baby. I'm glad it was a good time for you. It, um, it was a good time. It was we'll be time. back pretty soon and i think dare i say it i think we're gonna have our first guest oh jeepers i think we are yeah very exciting stuff we're gonna keep a lid on that for we'll see we'll see for, yeah we're gonna keep a lid on that we don't want to we don't want to get ahead of ourselves but yeah we, yeah we do we do have a, a few surprises up uh on this season three i would say that i think involves one or more guests throughout the season but again we'll see very exciting stuff cooking uh for the near future as always guys we appreciate you guys tuning in listening liking subscribing reviewing I eat movies and uh, Dino will let you know where you can find all of us on the social medias. Dino. I eat movies podcast on Instagram and on Facebook. That guy over there is a uh, video 1987, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. And I am Dom casual discos. Those are both our Instagram names. Uh, please let us know if we did anything right. Um, and uh, Probably that's not, that's all we got. Um, <laughs> 
Hey, I did. I did do this. I did write out a synopsis. You, you did. You did damn it's, good. It's something. I, I you tried. You did damn good. You did damn good. If anybody <laughs> real, if one of our, you know, more passionate listeners want to go through and actually count how many times we collectively said, um, I think that this might be a series low. So I'm going to pat myself on the back. Right if anyone now. wants to do that, I want to remind them there are better <laughs> hobbies in the world. Um, nevertheless, we appreciate you all. Thanks very much. Thank you, Mike. And uh, thanks for checking out Trick Baby. Definitely, man. All right. Until next time, guys, eat more damn movies. Thanks, Dino. Thank you, sir.